from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join host Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hi, guys. Great to see you both here. How's it going? Patrick, what have you met? Oh, oh God. What have I been up to? Well, we are... All traveling the world. It's 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 not quiet times in the hydrogen world. Who knew? And I suppose we're in the pre-final steps as we come towards the latest COP, which I can only imagine that I'm speaking to two people who might be busy that particular week. Might I be right on that one, Chris? I don't know what you're talking about, Patrick. Um, I'm sure Alicia will be very busy at COP. Alicia is probably running COP at this point. She's doing the job of 30 secretariat at COP. <laughs> I, might, I might attend in a very crappy Premier Inn hotel and enjoy some canapes and listening to very distinguished speakers like Alicia speaking. But uh, I don't know how much I'm actually going to be doing there. But, but you are right. I will be there. Exciting. Well, we'll definitely have to, to meet up. There's tons of stuff going on, but it is not one week. <laughs> it is <laughs> a very long time. I think I'm there from November 27 to December 11. But uh, I'm not running it. I'm just participating. I'm, I'm helping to to organize a couple of things, but a lot of it is just participating or speaking or being in a ministerial or something. What, what's quite, what I'm pretty excited about is bringing, this is the COP of inclusivity. So I'm bringing two of our interns and they are actually well-spoken on this topic. So they will be actually on panels, which I think is pretty cool. They are both in college. So I think that is uh, exciting. Last year was, uh, you know, it was for the Global South. This year, I think we just keep adding them on. I don't think you have to kick out the old ones. So I think. <laughs> I mean, Alicia, that sounds like an amazing internship. So if anybody's listening in and knows somebody <laughs> looking for an internship, this this might be uh, something for everybody to flag. I'm sorry, though, that we're adding to your burden of uh, chaperoning and oversight of by like, sending Chris along with you for however long he's there <laughs> in his premier inn and scoffing canapes off the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to say, I uh, is that my second time in Dubai? Oh, and the first one was like two weeks ago or something. Maybe the more pertinent <laughs> question that we need to be asking ourselves today is, uh, who have we got on and uh, who'd like to tell me about it? Um, well, I mean, today we are very excited to have uh, Matthias Schlee from Batalyzer. Matthias is the CEO of Batalyzer, although as we discovered on the episode, not the founder. Well, let's, let's get him on. So Matthias, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, we've obviously talked for a little while about trying to find an excuse to get you on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background um, before we get into the whole conversation of Battleizer? Because you are one of these 
characters that has a fantastic backstory to this. And I think uh, for our listeners, it'd be very helpful for them to get a little bit of that additional color. So just on me then, uh, as a starter, so um, who am I? I'm a trained engineer, hydraulics, worked a long time for Shell, first in, in large capital projects. And since 2016 on, is a shift from fossil to renewable energy. After an MBA, moved from technical to commercial uh, roles. Uh, was an investment director at Shell Ventures and then uh, responsible for the, the commercial activities for, for Shell Hydrogen in Europe, focusing on, on blue, but mostly green hydrogen. And then um, since May 2001, I uh, started at Battleizer Systems as a first employee. And today we're around 75 people and, uh, and growing, uh, but I'm sure we'll talk more about that in, uh, in this podcast. What makes uh, Battleizer unique and how, how was it founded? I mean, you're the first employee, or you're, I assume you're the founder? Well, not really. So I think the, uh, so technically the, the company was incorporated in 2018 uh, and, and the idea was, was invented even earlier. You could actually go back more than a century uh, with Thomas Edison that, that came up with a nickel iron battery for, guess what, uh, electric vehicles. Now, we know how that went down, right, with uh, more over a century of, of internal combustion engines and now the electric vehicle is, is, uh, is, is back. But that's where it all started. Uh, Thomas Edison filed his patent, I don't know, more than, more than 100 years ago. Uh, on nickel iron chemistry as, as a battery, then over the many, many years, different scientists have tried to improve that battery because it has this quirk of, of uh, producing hydrogen and oxygen when the battery gets full. And, uh, and so did Focko Mulder, who's a professor at the Delft University of Technology, Advanced Material Science Department, until he you know, realized this was probably 2013, 14, like, hold on, the energy transition is not just about deep electrification uh, and storage of, of electrons, but also about green molecules. So that's where he said, okay, let's, let's try to turn this quirk into a, a product. And, and that's where the battleizer was born as, a, as, as an invention. First patent then was 2015, not a bunch of patents in 16, 17, 18, until the technology was ready to be, to be spun out. That was in 2018 in, in a... Uh, in an entity that was funded with, uh, you know, a, a small fund from the from the Wadden funds in here in the Netherlands, six hundred thousand euros, and with that money and, and a lot of love and, and hardship, uh, the, the, together with a, an engineering company, Proton Ventures, that we uh, owe a lot of credit to, you know, the, the Battleizer uh, was uh, was industrialized, and I joined the company after Colon Industries, uh, led by Case Colon, uh, one of the leading clean tech investors in, uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, in, in 2020, invested, restructured the company and looked for someone to could lead it. So, and that was fortunately me. So I was indeed the first employee, but, but I, uh, yeah, I started with, 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 a, uh, with a company with a half-built prototype, uh, which actually took us another two years to, uh, to get working, uh, which we're now proud to, to share. So that, that's the story. Um, that's how those two lines came together. It sounds almost slightly Elon Musk-esque, which I appreciate is a dangerous comparison in the hydrogen world that always doesn't always land very well. But um, I'm only just thinking, um, you know, coming into an old idea, an old, very wise idea, and then making it sort of better, or if you like, at least helping it to commercialize. Um, it's quite exciting, but also just, I guess, points out 
how long all this technology has been around for. Um, and I guess always invites the question of why has it taken so long to, to commercialize in some ways, right? I mean, what, what was it that sort of, you know, given we've had all this knowledge, what took so long for it to come out? Uh, I think, I mean, this is fundamental material science that we're talking about. And to get that from um, the lab where you basically work at a, a post temp size at, at most, then and then making that into an, an industrial machine like we have now that is operating at a in a true industrial site at, at RWE's Magnum power plant, you know, that goes with all the right certifications and safety aspects and I mean that is just a journey, um, irrespective of how many how much money you throw at it. It, it just takes time to get uh, to get that done. It's, it's it's the energy transition, Chris. Right? It's not a fancy app where we just uh, you know optimize existing data or, or it, it is truly difficult. Uh, and yeah, and but that's also why it makes it unique and uh, and and important, I believe, for the for the energy transition whole. Yeah, and you know, speaking from my work in the industrial spaces, that that all is consistent across the clean tech applications that we see. It's it's a very long story. You need a, a resiliency proof kind of case for for people to start deploying. But speaking of deployment, you've recently commissioned the first you know commercial unit. Can you tell us about it and and what I suppose are you hoping to achieve and, and demonstrate from that deployment? So yeah, I'd love to. So we have at uh, as I mentioned at the uh, RWE uh, power plant side at the Eenshaven. It's called Magnum. Eenshaven is is a, is a port in the north of the Netherlands, industrial port. Um, we have now a um, our first demonstration unit running, and I think what it shows to the world and ourselves that it it can actually do what we can do in the lab back in 2015. And what is critically important here is that we can very safely and very quickly switch on and off. And you wonder, you know, why is that so difficult? But I presume that most of your listeners actually understand and appreciate why this is so difficult. It has to do with crossover values, you know, polarity issues on electrodes and, and you name it. Um, but we don't really have that. Actually, we, we don't have it. You can operate a betalyzer as you would operate a battery. You can switch it off and on in a split second and and there is for us no degradation to electrodes whatsoever nor any crossover issues and um yeah the, the reason why is is simple because we have charged electrodes and and just like a battery that is you know is able to hold energy um that energy also allows it to to to, uh, to be flexible and, and to switch any crossover that we have basically recombines back to water so uh, it's an intrinsically safe system in that way um we can Shut in a pressurized betalyzer, and then and then depressurize it, and don't even see crossover issues. And that is what we can show in that uh, in that in that demonstration unit uh, at the Mecklen power plant, which is I I think a true world first. I mean, it really is quite actually uh, interesting, kind of talking through that. I mean, you know, I know we don't get too much into um, safety generally on EAH, and I'm going to get told off by Alicia and Patrick again because I'm diverting from script. But just quickly, because when we spoke about this before, Matthias, you, you were explaining this point, and I thought it was a very good one and that people don't necessarily understand fully. Can you just talk through that crossover point? You know, the sort of safety aspects of crossover and why that is a unique feature of Batalyzer? Because I, I, I don't think most listeners, even the more technically minded, are fully aware of that. So then, then we, then we uh, go a bit in the, in the technical depth here, which I, which I always enjoy. So what happens at the electrodes? Um, let me take one step back first. So 
at a normal electrolyzer, um, you know, you impress a current on, on, on an electrode, you split water, right? That's one electrochemical reaction that occurs almost instantly when you impress that current. In our case, it's slightly different. We have an iron and a nickel electrode, uh, and there is a first electrochemical reaction when you impress that current that happens at a voltage um, that is just lower to a second electrochemical reaction that occurs only when the first is, um, is fully saturated. So when the battleizer is, is empty and you start charging it, then these electrodes charge just like a normal battery would. And when those electrodes are fully charged, a second electrochemical reaction happens, and it happens actually on the back of the, of the first one. So to go into, uh, into the chemistry, you, you basically go on the cathode side from a nickel hydroxide to a nickel oxyhydroxide, and that, that is actually the catalyst for the oxygen uh, evolution reaction. And on the, on the anode side, you go from, uh, from an iron hydroxide to, uh, to, to plain iron, which is then the, the catalyst actually for the hydrogen evolution reaction. What, what you get here is, is basically a catalyst that you produce or you, you create at, at each cycle. And, and you basically also break down when you discharge it again. So there is no, you know, foreign or, or, or uh, critical raw materials that we use in order to enhance that reaction, uh, like iridium or, or rhodium, for, for example, um, that can also deteriorate over time. So it, it is a, a self-regenerative catalyst, and, and that allows us also to not see any degradation of electrodes over time. Now, back to that safety point you, you mentioned, Chris, it happens then also that when you completed that first cycle, so you charge those electrodes, and you go into that second electrochemical reaction, and there is crossover, which always occurs. Uh, and there is some, some hydrogen that is saturated in, in your electrolyte and that travels through the membrane to, uh, uh, to the other side. That molecule, that crossover molecule, actually only wants to do one thing, and that's recombine back to water at that charged electrode. And that effect actually is stronger than the saturation effect uh, itself. And, and we can see that by shutting in a battleizer at pressure, and, and then, you know, depressurizing it and, and basically do not still see any, any dangerous crossover value. Um, yeah, that makes it, I think, uh, intrinsically safe and allows us to, to, to operate super flexible. And, and, and the reason why we find it so important, it's, it's not just the safety, which is obviously a key feature, but basically unlocks a new business model. You only pick the cheap hours of the day to make hydrogen and, and the remaining hours, you either, you know, sell electricity back to the grid. And, and thereby, you're, you're attacking, you're addressing the largest cost component of the levelized cost of hydrogen, which is the electricity price. I, I see our competitors now really only doing one thing, which is trying to be more efficient or increasing current density. And it's, I don't think that's in, not important. We, we try that too. But what we basically very, do very different than, than others is address the cost of that electron by just picking the cheap hours of the day only. Matthias, that was actually interesting, even though Chris uh, tried to ask a uh, technical question. <laughs> I was riveted. <laughs> so I'll ask something about finance so that, that everyone else can be bored. Um, <laughs> I, I see that recently you announced new funding from European Investment Bank to scale up the technology. Can you tell us a little bit more about the funding and what you intend to do now that it's been secured? Yeah, indeed. So uh, pretty proud. Uh, I, I met Chris at the conference. So you can attest to it. Uh, we, um, uh, we were able to announce a 40 million uh, euro venture debt from the European Investment Bank. 
Uh, it's a long process, by the way, um, for, for those that, uh, that are thinking to do the same. But we will fund the delivery of a one megawatt unit that we will bring to market uh, in the first quarter next year. And also uh, prepare our, uh, our production lines for a five megawatt uh, product that we're bringing to market end of next year. So on our website, you see our product spec. We'll refer to this as a Battleizer 250, which is the first one, the one megawatt unit that also has one megawatt hour of storage capacity. Uh, and then our Battleizer 500 product, which has, um, uh, which we'll offer in, in, in a five module, in a five megawatt uh, module. Uh, and that has, uh, for every megawatt of electrolysis capacity, it has half a megawatt hour of storage capacity. Um, so all in all, um, that would bring us to basically a, a, a Series B towards the, the back end of next year. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, that certainly doesn't hurt. Is there a company also that has recently benefited from um, some grant funding? It definitely gives you a little bit of momentum um, in this current market anyway. I mean, I guess part of that business case is the fact that what you do is quite interesting. So, uh, and from investors that they can clearly see an interesting angle. But I can also see, Matthias, that what you guys do in some ways is also probably a headache for investors because it doesn't fit into an easy, neat bucket. And so I guess given the combination of battery and hydrogen within the technology, how do you optimize for all those different potential use cases that could come there? And obviously the link question from that is, how do you actually anticipate getting banks and investors like that comfortable with that? You know, I'm sure, I know it's probably the wrong terminology, but sort of combined sense of technology risk. And again, whether that's real perceived, you can tell me and you can challenge, but, uh, you know, it's interesting that you can do both. Does the very fact that you are so flex- flexible and you have this optionality create headaches in actually telling customers what they can use it for and why and equally getting banks and investors comfortable with what people should be using it for? Yeah, I, I think that that's actually a very interesting question uh, because I find that the, the battery world and the hydrogen world, they don't really mix well together. They're, you know, two different parts of, of often the same equation. So, yeah, I mean, if we go to one company and you talk to the, you talk to the hydrogen business, for example, they don't really know what to do with that battery, right? Uh, although, funny enough, you do see more and more electrolyzers being installed with a battery, which is kind of underscoring our, our, our point. So w- what do we do? I think in the, in the short term, sort of, let's say the next until 2030, until 2035 or so, you see a world where there is a, a high value for, for, green, for truly green hydrogen. And also you see a world where there is more and more solar and wind coming to, uh, to the system. Uh, but the, the backup fossil generation is not gone yet. So you do see low power prices uh, during a, a sunny day, for example. But you do not see extreme peaks yet. Why not? Because the gas peakers will, you know, will, will, will catch those. Um, so in that shorter period of time eh, where we see basically in a high value for, for green hydrogen and often low prices, yeah, we, we should act more as an electrolyzer. And the, the product I spoke about just now, our Battleizer 500, actually can already compete and is more than competitive to all the other incumbents out there. So we can take them head on. However, in addition, we also provide that, that flexibility. So actually, that is not a, not a difficult story. It's basically we do the same as them and we have, and we have more and, and we have this new business model that we can, can unlock. Looking further, and that's what investors often like, looking further down at the energy transition, you can say, hey, 
But in the future, when those gas peaks are off, and you will also see some high price moments. So well, those we can really monetize by having our battery capacity. So, uh, so we see ourselves really as a platform technology with um, that depending on the use case or where we are in the energy transition, we can be more of a battery or more of an electrolyzer. But just so on an electrolyzer basis, uh, we can compete to the best out there. Fighting talk. I like it. <laughs> and over to you, Patrick. Yeah, well, well, speaking of exactly fighting talk, the, the, the final question I think we have to ask you is essentially, what are the, the plans for the future? And, and I suppose, when can people expect to be able to buy your systems? Well, you, you can buy them now. Uh, go to our website, uh, download the products pack, uh, give me a call. Uh, honestly, we, we, are in, uh, we are in business. Uh, the route to, to mass production, however, does, does, ha- does have a few intermediate steps. We have uh, laid out a, a plan to scale up production, first manually, then, uh, but already thought through on how to automate that and increasingly more, more automate it. We bring up Battleizer 500 product to the market and, and we can have that as, as soon as, as the end of, the, of, of, of next year installed. Um, and then we also have actually a, a lot of research still that allows us to move beyond Battleizer 500 and have, have further product improvements. Yeah, and we, we are quite gifted with our partnership with Delft University of Technology, where our inventor, Foko Mulder, and his research group are still you know, on a daily basis working on, on the chemistry and, and, uh, and, and further you know, material science improvements, which we can take on in, in, in future uh, product innovations. Well, look, I mean, I think um, it was fantastic to get you talking a little bit about the product and obviously exciting to see that you guys are, are if you like, at that stage now where we're really starting to ramp up and bring the products and the offering to market. You know, I guess, you know, the, the, I know Patrick still said the last question, but sometimes we also like to give our guests the chance to have the final word. So is there anything that you feel we've not had a chance to cover off on episode, anything about the company or anything about... I guess, you know, even where you see the market that you feel is an important final note to leave with our listeners before we uh, we let you go on your maiden uh, recording on the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a very open question. I should come up with something smart now. Um, I mean, this is, this is not a, if, if you look at the energy transition as a whole, this is not something one company can pull off, of course, or not even one individual chain of the, of the whole value chain can pull off. It, it, it does require a lot of collaboration that goes from banks that need to lean in and, and sort of need to let go of some of their old paradigms. It also means that some of the end customers that only think in sort of baseload production need to sort of become more flexible in their thinking. And, and so there's a plea uh, basically across the whole value chain to kind of help each other out. I mean, we're really at the beginning of this. And, and if you zoom out, uh, and, and depending on which forecast you believe in, but um, let's say in 2050, right, we need 10,000 gigawatts of installed water, water electrolysis capacity. In 2030, we'll have about 10% of that. So, I mean, in 2030s, we're only just starting, right? Today, we're not using Netscape anymore as, a, as the first, you know, a, internet explorer. So today's winners may not be tomorrow's winners. I think let's... Let's work together and then um, and, 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 and get to the real starting point of, of the energy transition at the, at the scale that is required, which is probably around 2030. Well, I think that's a very, very good way to end, to be honest. I thought that was a very strong exit. So um, 
Can I just say, Matthias, on behalf of all of the Everything About Hydrogen co-hosts, thank you so much for your time and thank you for telling us all about your product. And we're excited to hear more as you come to market and uh, and uh, we can cheerlead your every success. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, everyone. Okay, folks, I, I have to say that was a... An interview that spanned the technical to the practical to the the pathways to deployment and also is is certainly a novel technology pathway. I know I've robbed you of your initial talking points by just giving that description, but what did we think? Alessia, you go first. Oh, okay. Because I always have the technical questions. No, I I am actually a little bit interested. I don't think we quite asked about sort of the market that he's targeting. You know, is this homes that that are then selling back to the grid is it always connected to a grid it it seemed to be that that was one of the biggest selling points or could it be a standalone product because the fact that you're adding a battery to hydrogen is not shocking because most projects would have batteries for storage or some some form of storage uh, other than um bullets or you know there's lots of different ways to have storage so uh it would it it does make sense that you're going to need some of it but it was just from the size of it. I guess uh, he started with like a one megawatt, and then they're they're going up to five hundred megawatts. So that doesn't seem like a home. Um, <laughs> seems a bit larger. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm curious for sort of what size and and some serious serious energy consumption. <laughs> but grid um, castles, maybe that's the cop. Yeah, exactly. All, all the heritage homes that people live in one room, but there's like a thousand bedrooms. <laughs> Patrick, or did you guys have a idea? Maybe a better idea of like who he's targeting? Uh, is it just industrial? Is it heavy industrial? Like what what type of activities? So I, I think Alicia, in answer to your question around Batalizer and its applications. What I would say is that the, the logic behind it that's important for everyone to understand is that essentially it is a battery, it plugs into the grid, and when essentially it hits around 90 or just after 90% of full charge, as a consequence of being charged, it starts to produce and release hydrogen. So it's only producing when the state of charge is already quite high. So it's not a system that is constantly producing a stream of hydrogen. And so in that sense... Uh, you shouldn't think about it in the way that we maybe would look at hydrogen from a um, industrial continuous process, right? You know, you wouldn't run a ammonia site off it necessarily or a refinery off it. But where it is clever and where it is interesting is to say, if you think about most lithium-ion batteries in the world today, if they're a two-hour average duration, which is the UK, or four-hour, which is fairly typical, they might fill up in the first two, four hours of the day. And then actually they're sitting around pretty much doing nothing. And they might not be doing anything for quite a while. And they're just waiting, essentially. Uh, And so here, what they're saying is actually you can continue to draw. And as you're drawing, what you're actually doing is you're generating hydrogen from the process. And so there's a couple of things that are interesting for that. I mean, clearly longer term, what's interesting is that there's an element of maybe feeding into a gas grid, even if that's an industrial gas grid or storage, that's kind of interesting. It's It's a way of using some of that. But I think the bit that they are looking at in the Netherlands in particular, and I think their first pilot site uh, in Netherlands in particular is looking at this, is actually, can you use this to tie uh, battery storage to pika and gas plants that could then switch to hydrogen, right? So you can imagine that effectively the battery is doing most of the heavy lift. And when it's not actually being used, it's producing hydrogen that effectively is then sitting there 
that can then be used effectively if the battery then has to be fully discharged and the battery is fully discharged, but there's still a need for additional on-demand firm power that is zero carbon to come into the system. And then that's where the hydrogen that's been produced from Batalyzer can effectively be then used by the peaker plants and feed back into the grid. So conceptually, it is quite interesting. Um, I'm not enough of a chemist to get into the wear and tear and optimum efficiency, but um, there are bits of it that are quite exciting. And Patrick, you, you mentioned that uh, some of your colleagues had also spoken about it. Maybe you can share some additional light and thoughts. I, I mean, you know, to your point on wear and tear, I think one of the the features is, and, and Matthias went through this in 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 specific detail around some of the advantages of linking the systems and avoidance of some of those factors that often make performance of a you know electrolyzer on its own or a battery system kind of more challenging. It's a unique value proposition, but but I think one of the pieces that we we always hear about is you know that static kind of wasted time space. How how you derive value from kind of you know when you hit that ninety percent threshold, what happens next with a battery, right? Well, you know where do those electrons go? Well, now you have a pathway for some level of value add and and productization of of additional electrons. That, that's just a a smart system efficiency dynamic to, to build in. As to the scaling aspect, you know, I think I think there's just off the top of my head, I can think of four or five just general spaces where something like this could potentially add value. And you know, that's the nature of these these kind of early stage companies is that like they're dynamically solving in in systems and looking at the problems again from a, a non-static kind of positioning, right? So whether it's a one megawatt system or it's a 500 megawatt system, no doubt there are different dynamics of operation that will come into play for each one, but you may be able to solve slightly different problems and fix some of these kind of uh, connective uh, kind of uh, pieces that are, are currently missing in our systems. All of which is to say, you know the flag that that he 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 mentioned that hydrogen and and electrolyzer uh, folks not not being as connected to battery folks and battery folks not being as connected to electrolyzer and hydrogen folks i i i think that it speaks to a truth that that perhaps is something that we are all going to have to grapple with in the very very near future as we start to integrate these systems more fully so to my mind this is very interesting speaking from industrial use cases and, and, and industrial kind of operational profiles. Uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and that's why I'm really excited to see how they get on on this first, first full deployment, uh, because it's going to tell us so much about the opportunity uh, technology like this can play. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm also envisioning sort of industrial parks, right? Like the type of thing where you, you're going to have so many different solutions working together. And really the type of projects that Chris is developing, um, you know, when you're bespoke to some extent, but then you also, you're going to be pulling from these like 10 different categories of, of solutions and how do you have them work together and you're, you're basically taking a bug and turning it into a feature. I, I really like that about his product. Like that's pretty cool that um, <laughs> it, it randomly starts making hydrogen and uh, and you can actually use that uh, um, in another way. So I, I think that's actually um, pretty pretty neat. I haven't said neat in a long time. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I mean, actually the thing that I was just thinking about, and I think I've spoken to Tyus about it, I'm always, I, I have to realize, I. Uh, 
there's a danger here sometimes where I get excited and we talk about these things in the episode and then afterwards I go, damn it, that's quite a clever idea. I should have done that, not said it online. But anyway, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll share this one with the team because I think it's a good one. I mean, the one me and Matthias were speaking about when I originally caught up with him on the episode was to say, well, maybe one of the applications is to think about it um, for some of the EV charging sites that are starting to be rolled out today. Because actually, Matthias is right. The EV world and the hydrogen world don't talk enough. And actually, on the vehicle side, when you speak to most of the vehicle OEMs, despite the you know um, rapidly anti-anything hydrogen and transport um, voices that are out there, most vehicle OEMs are pretty candid in saying they see a role for hydrogen and BEV, and they would like to see, frankly, refueling infrastructure co-located. For them, it actually makes quite a lot of sense. Uh, and their customers makes quite a lot of sense. And actually, a lot of the really big EV charging sites that you have, especially ones with commercial vehicles or just large volumes of traffic, are looking at or have already put in place batteries so that they can provide that peaking surcharge power for those EV charging capabilities. So if you're also producing hydrogen on the side that you can store and you can also use that either for you know hydrogen refueling or you could use that for a small little fuel cell that could pack up and do some additional EV charging when the battery had run out, you know, that's some really clever systems thinking that starts to link together and actually makes a ton of sense. I totally agree. And that, I think that's the part of this that is so exciting is the systems thinking. It's it's not about this is better than this or this, uh, you know, can only be used for, for one, two and three. And this has to be only used for X, Y and Z. I, I just really like the whole um, systems thinking and the whole energy system in whatever area and looking at what you have and what you can do with it. And the whole circular economy part of it, being able to recycle, being able to use what would and otherwise be waste. I think it's just really exciting. Well, I mean, on that note, I mean, maybe uh, only final thing, given that you were talking about COP at the start of the episode, Patrick, yeah, and, and Alicia as well. We spent a lot of time in the early, in the early everything about hydrogen episodes, talking about new technologies and saying why they were really interesting and exciting. And actually, we haven't really gone and talked about early stage technologies in the hydrogen space for a little while. Do we think that this COP and the general focus of policymakers and investors is is kind of still now shifted and it's more about scaling up and taking the stuff that's already out there that's already kind of commercial and semi-commercial and pushing that? Or do you still think there is a big role in discussions for new technologies today like Batalyzer that are, you know, they're not at... You know, they haven't had multiple bank financings. They haven't had multiple insurances. They don't have a scale manufacturing line, but they are potentially a really interesting technology, exactly as Matthias was saying, as they start to gear up. Is, is this the time still to be talking about those type of ideas at forums like Pop, or do we need to just get on with the stuff that's already out there that's, that's already a bit further advanced and then pick these things up? as things progress. What what are your final thoughts on that maybe before we kind of wrap up for this episode? I'll say it in one word, both. Alicia, <laughs> over to you. Well, I mean, you know, COP is the conference of the parties and the parties are mostly governments and NGOs. I, I don't think that I've been to many COPs where you get super technical about particular solutions. Um, and in particular, I think this COP is really focused on finding the money how do, how do we find the money? Where are all the pockets? Because there's lots of pockets with money and people have just not figured out a way to channel it into the right areas in order to meet our goals. So I think that a lot of it is about that. And then also certification, just making it tradable. 
you know, having having a product that you can sell to somebody and actually distinguish it from another product that could have had much more emissions history, that type of thing, I think is is going to be featured. And um, and then, of course, it is. I think we will see how we have not really met our goals. <laughs> this is this is the cop of of. Uh, basically um, finding out that we're not quite aligned with the 1.5 and we need to get moving faster. So that part of it will not be very uplifting. But I, th- I think that there's just been, even over this last year, so much commitment to growing and to um, and countries that are backing and putting a lot of money into different um, infrastructure and also, you know, just to get the scaling up of all this large equipment and finding ways to finance it. So I, I think it's that is quite good. I feel like we're in a practical year. And I think that's really necessary if we think we're going to get anywhere in time. I couldn't agree more. Technology in the march of it doesn't stop. So we have to deploy and we deployment is part of reducing costs. Deployment is part of making this all of these systems real. And innovation will help us continue to march forward in terms of deploying more effectively, more efficiently, reducing costs, making this more available solving efficiency and operation problems. It's not either or. It's inevitably that our focuses over time shift from future looking to immediate deployment and future looking. It's not one. It's not either. It's both. You're right. I'm with you now. (laughs) That was Everything About Hydrogen, hosted by the team Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman and Chris Jackson. If you have a question for the Hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.